Bible books in 30 minutes. Through the Bible, book by book, with author, pastor and Bible teacher Mike Beaumont, who's talking to David Tavner. Yet again, Mike, we're going to be talking about two of Paul's letters together. They're two quite short letters, actually. One and two Thessalonians. Thessalonica, where was that? Thessalonica was in the Roman province of Macedonia, what we today would call Greece. Had a population of round about 100,000, somewhere between 100 to 200,000. Again, it's very hard sometimes to, to be precise didn't keep records quite like we do today, but quite a significant city. Again, Paul choosing somewhere significant. It was on a really great bay, so it had a a good harbour. So there was a lot of trade came in and out from it. And it was also on the the Via Ignatia, the Ignatian Way that linked really uh, Rome with its eastern provinces. And it was at the crossroads with a road that went up to the north to the River Danube. So quite an important sort of strategic city, a bit cosmopolitan, trading, commerce. So again, quite a a key city that Paul based one of his churches in here. So where is Paul writing from to the people here in Thessalonica? Well, he's moved on from Thessalonica after the church was established. And actually, he's had to move on quite quickly, Uh, We'll see in a moment. And he's writing this probably as he moved on to Corinth. He spent an 18-month period in Corinth. And these two letters were were written about six months apart. The first of them, 1 Thessalonians, pretty soon after he'd had to leave Thessalonica in a hurry. The next one about six months later to clarify some misunderstandings that had been going on. So these two particular letters are about 10 years earlier than the letters we've been looking at in previous episodes, like Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians and Philemon. And it's just worth mentioning in passing, by the way, we always get a lot more out of the letters if we can just put them in their context Please remember these aren't in chronological order at all. Actually, they're put in this order really because of their length more than anything else originally. So, yeah, these were about 10 years earlier than those previous letters that we've been looking at. One thing that also strikes me about these letters and and Paul's story is that this all happened relatively soon after Christ's death and resurrection. Yeah, A lot was achieved by Paul in a relatively short amount of time. Incredible, isn't it? I mean, this is less than 20 years after the resurrection. So an incredible amount was achieved. And of course, because it is so close to that time, what Paul says actually in 1 Corinthians is when he's telling the story of Jesus there, he says, listen, many of the people who saw these events were still alive Uh, go and ask them if you don't believe me. So we're still very close to the events. And when you think that, yeah, Paul and others, of course, other apostles were doing work in other areas, but tremendous amount achieved out of this passion that he got through his encounter with Jesus on that Damascus road that day. We sometimes think we're clever with 10-year plans. (laughs) Paul obviously didn't have a 10-year plan. He just got on with it. He did just get on with it. He definitely had a plan. We've said several times how he always went for strategic cities and he got this 
passion that comes out in his letters to do things. One was to get to Rome because that was the center of the universe in their day. Uh, he knew if he could get the gospel to Rome, it could go everywhere from there. And the other was to get to Spain, again, the ends of the world that they knew at the time. But I think his strategy was simply to follow the Holy Spirit, do the next thing he was given to do, and when he couldn't do it any longer, like he couldn't at Thessaloniki, to Scarper and move on to the next place and start again. It sounds though as though time was always precious as far as he was concerned. There was an urgency. Yes, I mean, he has one phrase in one of his letters where he writes about redeeming the time because the days are evil. So he he really did see them as as urgent days. And as we'll come to in a moment, probably at this time, Paul, along with the other early Christians, still expecting the return of Jesus within their lifetime. And it, it's only later towards the end of his life that he's probably starting to realise it's going to be delayed a little bit more than he had first anticipated. But that conviction comes out, does it, in this letter to the Thessalonians? Well, both letters. Yeah, absolutely. A conviction that Jesus is coming back is one of the key themes in these two letters. It's, it's a very dominant theme, and it seems to be one of the reasons that he wrote. I mean, the first reason he wrote 1 Thessalonians was sheer relief to hear that they had not only survived, but thrived. We read about how he established this church in Acts chapter 17, and his preaching had led to a riot with people arrested and thrown in jail, and Paul had had to be sort of evacuated during the night. There was such hostility to him, and even when he went on to Berea, some of the Thessalonians had chased after him to oppose him there. So he'd left this newly planted church in what would be very fragile circumstances, very young Christians facing outright opposition and persecution. And he was desperate about them and thinking, I hope they're okay. And he's received news that not only have they survived, they've thrived. And so First Thessalonians, a lot of it is to do with, wow, I am so glad to hear this news and I rejoice that you're still standing despite all your suffering and I'm longing to get to see you again and I hope to be able to do that soon. But in the meantime, I'm so encouraged. And that takes up about half the letter so you can see how encouraged he was. But the second half of 1 Thessalonians comes back to the question that you just asked me about the return of Jesus. And at the end of 1 Thessalonians and in 2 Thessalonians as well, we get an awful lot here about what Paul was expecting the return of Jesus to include and to look like. Where did he get that understanding from? Well, it seems that he got it from Jesus himself. Clearly, Jesus taught some things about his own return. I mean, we can find that in the Gospels. There's quite a lot there. But it focused on things like it being sudden, it being unexpected, it will be at a time when we don't know. So Paul would have had some of those traditions and teaching himself. But it almost looks like he suggests that maybe Jesus revealed some of this stuff to him directly as well. But if we just read a few verses from chapter 4, from verse 13... 
we read, Brothers, we don't want you to be ignorant about those who fall asleep. Now, to sleep or fall asleep was a common metaphor in New Testament times for to die. Just like we would say today, he's passed or he's passed on. So he's talking about Christians who've died or to grieve like the rest of men who have no hope. I've always taken encouragement there that Paul doesn't say, I don't want you to grieve. He says, I don't want you to grieve like those who have no hope. So, of course, we grieve when loved ones have died. But, you know, we are Christians and they're Christians. We've got great hope. We know where they are, so we don't grieve like they do. And then he says this. We believe that Jesus died and rose again. And so we believe that God will bring with Jesus those who have fallen asleep in him. So they're coming back with him one day. Then listen to this. According to the Lord's own word, we tell you that we who are still alive, who are left till the coming of the Lord, will certainly not precede those who've fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a loud command, with the voice of the archangel and with the trumpet call of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. And after that, we who are still alive and are left will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will be with the Lord forever. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. Now, According to the Lord's own word, what he goes on to say isn't recorded in the Gospels. So we have to ask here, is this a direct revelation that Jesus gave to Paul? Or it could possibly be a tradition that's not recorded in the Gospels, though it seems so crucial that it would be odd if it's not. So it looks like this is something that Jesus revealed to Paul, not saying necessarily on that road to Damascus, but we know from Galatians that one of the things that Paul did shortly after he became a Christian was to to withdraw into the desert regions for three years. And what was he doing during that time? I think he was going through his scriptures, seeing where they pointed to Jesus, getting revelation from Jesus. And possibly that was there at this time that this happened. Because, as we said, this is all happening not many years after Christ's resurrection, why was there an understanding that he would come back again so soon? Well, if you think about it, that understanding goes right back to the apostles themselves. In Acts chapter 1, Luke tells us that he spent 40 days after the resurrection teaching them about the kingdom of God, And then he's preparing them to go and telling them he's going to send the Holy Spirit. And there's a telling verse when uh, he says in Acts 1, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? So they thought it was even more imminent. And I suppose if you've had Messiah with you and he's taught you about the coming of the kingdom of God and he's been saying for the last three years, the kingdom is breaking in, it's breaking in, it's breaking in it would be instinctive to think, and here it comes in all its fullness. It must be very, very close. Of course, Jesus went on to say, it's not for you to know the times of the seasons, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you. Now get on with the job. 
So it looks like at first, based on the teaching Jesus had given them, that they had assumed, incorrectly, that his coming would be pretty soon to complete what he had started. After all, his whole ministry had only lasted three years. Why would they have any cause to think that the next stage would be any longer than that? But it becomes clear with the passing years that this isn't going to happen just yet. It's going to be a bit longer than we thought it was. And therefore, we need to get on with the work that he's given us to do. Because is Paul sort of highlighting the dangers of this being a distraction, this fixation on Jesus coming back? Absolutely. And by two Thessalonians, he's actually addressing that specific issue because there were some people who were so fixated on the return of Jesus in an unhealthy and imbalanced way that they were actually, they'd given up their jobs. Now, that sounds very spiritual, doesn't it? The Lord's returning, and I just have to give my whole time to telling people about the good news. Well, there's something, you know, excellent in that. But Paul actually says, no, hang on a minute. This is not an excuse for avoiding your responsibilities in life. In fact, that's where his saying comes, if a man will not work, let him not eat. Uh, this has got nothing to do with saying whether people should have some sort of social security benefits to help them when they are out of work or not. In context, it was about people who were deliberately giving up their jobs for the apparently spiritual reason that I need to give my whole time to preparing for the coming of Jesus. And Paul says, no, get back to your job, get on with the work. This is not an excuse for avoiding your responsibilities. While we're on this, I've got to ask the question. We've got to bring it up to date. Here we are 2,000 years later, mm. and Christ hasn't come back. Yeah. What's that all about? It's one of the questions that's actually asked in the New Testament itself. We'll come to that in a future episode when we look at Peter's writings, when people are sort of mocking and saying, you know, you keep saying he's coming, where's he's coming? And he says, well... Just remember with the Lord, uh, a day is as a thousand years and a thousand years as a day. Our time scale is not his. And the actual moment of his return, Jesus was very clear about this in the Gospels. He said, but of that day, no one knows, neither the Son of Man nor the angels in heaven, only the Father. Isn't that an incredible mystery? Within the Trinity, there's something that only the father knows and the son is waiting for him to say it's now son so our time scales aren't god's time scales but i'll tell you what david you know the whole covid thing got me really thinking back to this again because you see in what has happened around the world through things like covid some what really the bible would describe as as plagues and so on, and things happening across the whole world. And suddenly perhaps it wakes you up again to thinking, Do you know what, maybe I've taken the return of Jesus as a nice theological idea that is absolutely, definitely going to happen one day, but it's still going to be a long, long way off. 
And then things start to happen and things like the whole ecological disasters that we're facing. And Paul talks in Romans about creation groaning and heaving, longing for Christ's return. And I have to say for me personally, I am not seeing these things as therefore meaning Jesus is coming back a week on Thursday. But it has quickened my hunger again to pray for that day to come. I mean, Jesus tells us to pray for that day and to get on with the work in the meantime of sharing the gospel. So I think our danger these days is not theirs. Theirs was to see as imminent and it's going to happen a week on Thursday. And Paul has to say, no, it's not. Now, our danger is it has gone on so long that it's easy for even Bible-believing, Bible-loving Christians to assume that the return of Jesus is way, 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 way off. And maybe these events that have happened and are happening in our midst and in our world are a reminder that, that this world is very fragile and life in this world is fragile and this world will not last forever because Jesus is coming back to renew and transform it and to take to himself those who have believed in him to be with him and his father forever. I was just going to say, why does Jesus need to come back? He's coming back to really complete what, what God had wanted to do from the beginning. The whole Bible story uh, starts in Genesis with God creating a world in perfect harmony and perfect balance as a place for the human race to dwell in, in fellowship with him. And because of Adam and Eve's sin, that got messed up. Sin came not just into Adam and Eve, but to the whole of creation. It starts falling apart from that point on. And God's plan from then onwards has always been to have a plan to come back and to build for himself a family of faith that would not one day be whisked away to heaven and live there forever and ever, singing with the angels and playing harps. The Bible's very clear at the end of Revelation that we'll look at in a future episode that one day heaven comes down to earth. The earth itself is renewed and it's there on a renewed, transformed, somehow different and yet somehow the same earth that God's people are going to live forever. So this is the completion of what God started to do on that day when Adam made his wrong decision. So back to Thessalonica and the Christians there, Paul's message was, there's still work to do. Let's just get on with it. Yes, uh, very much so. And don't get too bogged down. What I love, not just about Thessalonians, actually, but, you know, wherever the Bible talks about the return of Jesus, it is not for sort of academic interest. It, it, is, it is not to tickle our fancy and have us chasing for dates and times and signs. It is always followed, if not with this particular word, at least with this particular idea, it is always followed with a therefore. So we get the teaching about the return of Jesus in 1 Thessalonians 4 and 5, and in 5 he goes on to say how they don't need to be anxious about those who've died, but how Jesus is coming back suddenly, so we need to be ready and live in the light of that. And then in chapter 5, verse 11, therefore, encourage one another and build each other up, just as in fact you are doing. 
So teaching about the end times is not what it has become so often today in the modern Western church, a cause for writing many books or producing many films, many of which completely fanciful and not well-rooted in scripture. It's designed not to get us looking for times and dates and is this a sign? Is that a sign? Oh, such and such a country has done this. Oh, Sansa has done that. The teaching is always followed by some sort of therefore. Because Jesus is coming back, and it's normally a therefore with two prongs. One is live holy and share well. Live holy lives. Why? Because you're getting ready for him coming and you're modeling something about what life with him looks like. Share well. Get on with sharing the gospel. Tell people about Jesus while there is still chance. Because, you know, the, the New Testament's really clear that one day, a day comes when the door is shut and when people no longer have an opportunity. This life is the only life we have to make a choice for Jesus. So live well, share well. I suppose we also just need to shake ourselves and remind ourselves that we're not talking about something theoretical. This is promised. This will happen. Yeah, absolutely. And again, it is not um, it's not a theological idea. It's not a sort of picture as a way of saying, uh, don't worry, things will get better. The world will get better one day. This is a real event. Jesus spoke repeatedly about his coming again from his own mouth. The apostles repeatedly speak about the return of Jesus. So this is an event that will most assuredly happen. And yeah, there will be certain signs that it is getting closer, but that might not be close. <laughs> closer is not necessarily close. Jesus said there would be certain signs. Paul actually touches on that in 2 Thessalonians, where he talks about one of the signs being the coming of someone he calls the man of lawlessness in 2 Thessalonians 2, 3. Now, that's actually a term that's only used here. But elsewhere, it seems it's the same figure who's called the Antichrist uh, is a term that, that John uses. And the man of lawlessness or Antichrist is not Satan himself, but it, it is a figure or figures, plural, that personify the increasing hostility towards God and who even tried to set themselves up in God's place. So it's he's the ultimate expression of lawlessness that's at work in the world. Uh, while there will be one final figure like that, John talks in his letters about many antichrists, plural appearing. Anybody who sets themselves up uh, in opposition to Jesus, any one or anything. And there are many of those antichrists. Uh, but at the end, there will be this one figure, it seems, who will sum up and epitomize all of that opposition to Jesus. And that will be one of the signs that the end is certainly now getting very close. But it is absolutely going to be an event in history. It's not just a concept or an idea. So we can't just push it to the back of our minds. It's going to happen. We don't know when. What can we do in between? <laughs> well, we can do two things. First of all, uh, we can be ready ourselves. 
And the first way we have to be ready is by ensuring that we ourselves personally have put our faith in trust in Jesus Christ as our Lord and Saviour. And that we are living in the light of that. This is not about just doing a, oh yeah, I'll pray that prayer, good, now back to life. So it is important that we put our faith and trust in Jesus. You know, and if, if someone's listening to this episode today who's never actually done that, I want to appeal with you to, to put your trust in Jesus, to believe he died on the cross to pay the price for your sins to bring you back to God. Because this really is the only chance you've got to do that. This life, there is no grounds from Scripture for believing that we have any opportunity to change our mind once we have died. Now, I know there are people who've thought that and even some church traditions that have taught that, but the Word of God gives us no grounds for believing that. So I think the first thing is, is making sure we ourselves are ready that we put our faith and trust in Jesus. And the second thing that flows out of that is making sure that we ourselves are, are taking every opportunity we can to share the good news of Jesus. And this good news is not just about believing Jesus and you can escape the judgment that's coming. This is believe in Jesus and you can have the most incredible life and adventure that starts now and will never end. So, you know, making sure we are ready ourselves, but also doing all we can to share with others this good news of Jesus so that they too are ready when that day comes. So these two letters then from Paul to the church in Thessalonica, in summary, is what? About keeping in mind that Christ will return, but carrying on with life in an appropriate way. Yeah, absolutely. And both of those two are balanced perfectly in the letter because we've not said an awful lot about it, but there's definitely things here about how we should live to please God. Uh, there's a verse that says it's God's will that you should be sanctified, that you should become more and more holy. So it's not an either or. This is not, oh yeah, let me give my whole love to uh, just declaring and believing that Jesus is coming again. It is that, but it's also living life differently now. Why? Because I want to prepare all I can for that day. But also I want to do all I can to model both by my life, my lifestyle, my words, my actions, my deeds, what life is like when we know Jesus. It is different. It is worthwhile. It is worthwhile giving yourself to this despite all the opposition that you might face, just like the Thessalonians had faced, incredible opposition, and yet had stood firm and were living differently and were using whatever days remained for them to share the good news of Jesus. And I think that's what Jesus would want for us, uh, to come to him, to let him so fill our life that our life is different and by both the lifestyle that we live and the words that we share, telling others what a great thing it is to know him and how when we know him, we can have a hope that when he returns, we are going to be with him and with his father forever. And that's surely good news. You said there's about six months between the two letters. Yeah. So the question that's going through my mind is, why did he need to write that second letter? 
uh, because they'd clearly misunderstood something of what he had said in the first letter. And I think what it had sought to do, it had sought to underline their conviction that actually they, they were right. You know, oh, Jesus is coming. Paul's just said it. Quick, give up our job. And so he wants to correct the misunderstanding that has come in, which is why this letter follows so quickly. So it's great that we've got both letters in our Bibles. We need that second letter to appreciate what they needed to know. Yeah, absolutely. God could have put lots of things in this book. He's chosen the ones that we really need. And one and two Thessalonians are really needed together. The message of one, yeah, there'll be opposition if you put your faith and trust in me. But keep believing, keep living it out, keep believing I'm coming back. But the message of two is that don't let that become an excuse for opting out of life. Engage with this world and it really is possible to do both, to live engaged in this world and with the people of this world, yet with the hope that Jesus is coming again one day. And that's our motivation for living differently and sharing the good news of Jesus. Mike Bowman has been talking to David Tavener. Listen to more episodes anytime. Bible books in 30 minutes. Through the Bible, book by book, from Genesis to Revelation, this is a United Christian Broadcasters production. For more about UCB, check out the website at ucb.co.uk.